0: Morning. I hope that y'all are excited and awake and ready to study God's Word together. If not, I hope to wake you up uh, and help you be excited about uh, what we're looking at here this morning. We've been working our way through Genesis. Uh, We are, believe it or not, about three weeks away from wrapping up this book, and uh, then we'll turn... Christmas, and then first part of the year, we'll start looking at 1 Corinthians together. So that'll be exciting and fun. Uh, and what we've seen is this, is that, um, you know, as we picked our way through through uh, the book of Genesis, we've seen various stories. You know, first the story of how the world came into existence and how sin entered into the world and And how God dealt with that. And then the rise of nations and how God's judgment came again on the nations because they were sinful through the flood. And then the spreading out of nations from Noah and his family uh, once again. And then God choosing one man to be founder of a new nation, a special people that would be his own possession, and to whom he would give a land and to whom he would reveal himself and through whom the Messiah would come. And that was Abraham. We looked at Abraham and his whole story and all of its ups and its downs and its uh and its great triumphs and blessings from God and also Abraham's sin and how he wandered at points away from God and made uh, terrible decisions and, and awful choices that had repercussions for generations afterward. And then we looked at his son Isaac and and then we looked at Jacob and and we and Jacob is really interesting because he is a deeply flawed man who makes some very deeply flawed sinful choices that have repercussions later in not only his life, but the lives of other people around him and part of his family. And, and then we look at his sons, Joseph and his brothers, uh, all these sons that result from Jacob's four wives, which he was about three too many. Um, did not have had that many wives, and it resulted in all kinds of issues. Anytime you have a polygamous situation like that, you have a mess, and that's what it proved to be in Jacob's life. And you see how Jacob and his Jacob's sons eventually start dividing against themselves, and they sell one of them into slavery. And you shift then away from Jacob and you look at just the boys and how is there going to be reconciliation and reunion because one of them is off in Egypt as a slave initially and then as ruler. And this week what we're looking at is how Jacob's story, he's now an old man, very old, and Joseph's story reconnect. As Jacob finally makes his way down to Egypt to see the son that he thought was dead, that is now ruler in Egypt, just second only to the pharaoh. And they're going to re; these stories are going to reintersect. Can you just imagine for a second what this must have been like? You know, Jacob is an old man. He's 130. He's very old. Uh, even if you use a, a lunar calendar, uh, as they probably did in those days, this is. Uh, He's a very old man, a very old man, and many of the promises of God that were made to him have not quite worked out like he thought that they would. The people of God still own next to nothing of the land that God promised. They're rich in livestock, but that necessarily means they keep moving from place to place, seeking sufficient pasture for all their flocks and herds. Jacob has a large family, but it's still a relative handful of them. And they're a long way from being a great nation, as God promised. And meanwhile, the promised land itself is two years into a famine with no end in sight. And on top of that, there are two things that Jacob knows for sure. Number one, that God had indicated through dreams that Joseph was going to be leader of the family after. Jacob was gone. And number two, that Jacob was not to leave the land. Abraham had left many years earlier. And if you remember, that did not go well. Abraham winds up essentially being kicked out of Egypt after lying about the relationship that existed between he and his wife, claimed he was, that, uh, that he was her brother instead of her husband. And... And so Isaac was told, "Don't leave the land for any reason. Do not leave." And I'm sure that's an instruction that Isaac passed down to Jacob. And then, of course, Jacob left the land to go get a wife and to escape from Esau. And to he actually wound up, as we as I said, with four wives in the land uh, of the of the Arameans up to the north and east. And things with Uncle Laban did not end well. He winds up fleeing with all of his stuff and all of his family just to get back to the land. And so I'm sure that God's command to his father is echoing in his own ears where he's thinking, I should never have left the land. But yet his son is down in Egypt. And the only way to see him is to leave the promised land. And on top of that, he has no desire to go and to be anywhere outside of the promised land. The land is part of Jacob's identity. In the same way that, you know, I don't know if you've, if you've um, been around farmers where there's a family farm that's been present in that family for generation and generation. Very often, you can't buy it for any amount of money. I know of a, of a family in the city of Indianapolis, and, and they, they owned a, a, a large amount of, of ground outside on the east side of the city, right off of U.S. 40, and they were offered, are you ready for this, $55,000 per acre for 100 acres of their 1,000 acres just for the 100 acres on either side of U.S. 40. And they turned them down. Now, if that had been mine, I would have said, I'll be happy to accept cash or certified check. (laughs) Okay? Um, Let me see the color of your money, right? But they would not sell. Why? This is my family's land. And part of who they are is tied up in that land and in that they have a farmhouse that's there and they had, had some, they had hired somebody to paint on the walls in the foyer of that house the family history of where they were in Germany and how they came across the ocean and, and how they have built and what the first house on the property looked like and now how it looks now and all this kind of thing, right? They will never sell that place. It will always be part of that family as long as the same kind of feeling obtains. Well, this is Jacob's feeling about leaving the land God promised. God promised this land to my grandfather, every bit of it. From the Euphrates River to the River of Egypt, from the Jordan to the sea, every bit of it. And I don't have it all yet. But God promised it to us, and he's going to deliver, and it's mine. But he's got to leave the land, because there's no other option if he wants to eat. And these two things are in tension, because for 22 years, Jacob has believed that Joseph is dead. And now his other sons bring back word that not only is Joseph alive, but he is ruler of Egypt and in charge of distributing grain the starving people, and going to see him necessarily means leaving the land. And the question in Jacob's mind has got to be, can, he, can I leave the land that God promised in order to be with the heir that God promised? And it seems like these two things are in tension. God promised me that, Jacob, that Joseph would be my heir, but God also promised me this land, and I don't want to leave. He's not sure what to do, but his desire to see his boy before he dies overcomes his desire to be in the land. Let's see what happens. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God. The God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, and Jacob had all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons sons uh, with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. You see God's grace here? God knows about the conflict in Jacob's heart, about leaving the land and, and in order to be with the promised heir. And so, so God comes in his night vision, and he speaks to him. It's been a long time since God has spoken to Jacob last, and he hears this voice, Jacob, Jacob, yeah, I'm here. It's God speaking, the God of your father, the God who made you these promises, the God who told your family to stay in the land, it's okay to leave. It's okay to leave because the place where you're going is the place where your big family is going to become the great nation that I promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to you. And God says, I'm going to bless you as you go, and I'm going to be with you in Egypt just as I was with you here in Canaan. And on top of that, you won't stay there forever. I'm going to be with you as you go down, and I'm going to be with you as you come back up. And Joseph is going to be with you on your deathbed. He'll be the one to close your eyes for the last time. And just as a side note, this vision comes in Beersheba, which is significant for a couple reasons. Number one, Beersheba is the southernmost point in the promised land. Uh, if you want to talk about the land of, I, of Israel, uh, in fact, the prophets talk about it this way. They, they refer to the land as e- existing from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is the northernmost point. Beersheba is the southernmost point. It's also the city where Isaac lived. It's the place where both Abraham and Isaac made treaties over water rights for their livestock. It's the, it's the place of seven wells, which is what Beersheba means it's a it's the place from which Jacob fled years before to escape the wrath of Esau it's a significant spot and Jacob comes to him there I mean God comes to Jacob there many years after the last time he was there to say you know you're leaving the land again I know you're leaving for a different reason this time because if you don't, all your children and grandchildren and livestock will die. God is very reassuring. And he says, look, my promises do you still hold? And in fact, this trip that you're about to take is going to result in the fulfillment of another promise and another prophecy that was given to Abraham two generations back. First, the promise that you would be a great nation. And second, the prophecy that your descendants would dwell in a land not their own and serve foreigners for 400 years. That's going to come about as a result of your trip. But you're going to escape and be back in the land. God says, I'm going to lead you out. And with that reassurance, Jacob and all his family and all their livestock moved down to Egypt with all their stuff and all the wagons that Pharaoh had provided. And it really must have been a bittersweet departure because as they go, Jacob leaves knowing he's never coming home again. He's never going back to the land. Keep reading. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt: Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben. Hanoch, Halu, Hezron, and Carmi, and the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and, Ham, and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sarad, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Pad and Aram, together with his daughter Dinah, although his sons and daughters, altogether his sons and daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Araili. The sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob. Sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Benjamin in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bala, Baker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jazer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And all the persons in the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, what's the point of that genealogy? Uh, I'll assure you it is not, to see if I can read it publicly publicly without tying my tongue into knots. Um, most of us, reading a genealogy of people to whom we are not related is hardly riveting. We look at it and we go, our eyes just kind of glaze over. We go, where's the good stuff at? You know, and And the book of Genesis is full of these genealogies. In fact, a lot of times people call them the begat chapters because of King James, you know. And so-and-so begat so-and-so and had other sons and daughters and he lived so many years and whatever, right? And begat and begat and begat, right? And 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 people just kind of go, what is, what is why is this here? Well, who is this blessing? But here's the deal. Every single one of these genealogies in, in the book of Genesis has a purpose for being there. And the purpose is, Uh, for this one, is so that God can have a reminder to his people, look, I am in the process of fulfilling my promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob of making a great nation of people. I am fulfilling my promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that we're going to have a great nation. Now, if you remember, how many sons does Abraham have? Two, has Ishmael through the slave woman, Hagar. Bad idea. Uh, and then he also has Isaac with his legitimate wife, Sarah, who's 90 years old when she bears the boy, and Abraham is 100. Now, if you don't believe in miracles, that is one. Okay, This is not happening by normal means under the normal processes of life. And yet, nevertheless, God enables them to have a child when they are well into their retirement years. But they only have the one boy that God regards as part of the the line of promise. How about Isaac? Isaac's the child of promise. So you think, boy, this is when the promise is going to start being fulfilled great nation out of this guy, he has two boys by the same legitimate godly wife, right? And you think, ah, oh, twice as many as the old man. This is great. But how many count in the line of promise? One, Jacob. And then you watch Jacob's life. And from beginning to end, it's a train wreck. Amen? I read a story one time about a guy who, um, World War II fighter pilot, and he was in this P-51 Mustang, and these were a great airplane. They had a dive speed of about 450 miles per hour. Now, a modern, you know, supersonic jet would go a lot faster than that, but nevertheless, 450 is getting along pretty fast. And I guess, I've never been a pilot, but I guess one of the things that is a great rush is to come in really low right over the top of the trees. You know, like if you've ever seen Top Gun, you know, Permission requested for flyby, right? And this guy is going over the jungle in his P51 and he's cutting it right over the top of the trees and just you know, just zinging it, okay? Got the throttle all the way in. And he says, "I woke up hanging by my chute from the top of a tree, because he did not see that right over the top of the jungle canopy was about a 20-foot limb sticking straight up, and he saw it right at impact, and he got thrown out of the airplane, was able to get his chute deployed, and was left hanging by one of these limbs. He says, and I look back on my life, and there was a, you know, I look back on the airplane, and there was a quarter mile of wreckage behind me. You know, he's lucky to be alive. And if you look back on Jacob's life, there's about a quarter of a mile of wreckage in Jacob's life. You know, four wives, sons who want to kill one of the other sons, constant conflict between all of the women, which that had to be great. Right. I mean, whoever said happy wife, happy life was right on. Amen. Those of you who are married. Right. Now you've got four women in the house and none of them are happy with each other or with you at any point for one hundred and thirty years of your life. Okay, Jacob's going to testify about that later when he talks to Pharaoh. All right. But the whole thing has been a wreck. He's cut off from his family. He's cut uh, with, I mean, he burned a bridge to ashes with Laban because of all that mess. His home life is a train wreck. And you go, this guy is part of the people of God? Really? Scheming, cheating, lying, deceptive, sinful Jacob? Really? Yeah, that guy. But he does have a big family. And what, is, what God is showing here with this genealogy is that God is still gracious. He's got sons and grandsons and grandkids and daughters. And God is fulfilling His promise that even through sinful people, God still keeps His promises. By the way, is that still true? You know why God always fulfills His promises to sinful people? Because it's the only kind there are. Okay? It's all he's got to work with. There isn't anybody else to deal with but sinners. All of us. And so it's enormously comforting to me that you can look at Jacob's life and go, what a mess. And go, and yet God used this man to fulfill his promises. God is still fulfilling his promises even to these boys who first off thought, oh, murder is a good plan for getting rid of the the son we don't like. And then they thought, no, no, let's make a little money. There's no money in murder. Uh, Let's sell him as a slave instead and then lie to dad for 20 years about what really happened. This is not a nation yet. It's a down payment on a nation. There's going to be tens of thousands of descendants of Jacob from these 70 people. Let's find out what happens when they get to Egypt. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were, with, who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What's your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen, and from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, How many da- how are the days of, of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The, the days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt. In the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now Judah goes ahead to show the way into the land that Joseph has promised. And that's significant. Again, remember Judah? He's the guy who... uh, mistook his daughter-in-law for a prostitute and had children with her. He's the guy who is slowly assimilating into the culture, and yet somehow winds up through a route we're not quite sure, being the leader of the family. He's also the boy who initially suggested selling Joseph into slavery. But as we saw a couple weeks back, he's the guy who, when it came down, a situation of benjamin goes to prison and becomes a slave or i go to prison judah is the guy who says pick me i will be your servant and judah has risen in the family and he has he has uh, experienced redemption and he has come around to now jacob trusts him the same boy who sold his younger brother into slavery is the same boy who goes to see that younger brother and who has figured out where they should go. And he is the one that's entrusted with leading the entire group down into the land. It's an amazing thing how, what God has done in Judah's life. And as soon as Joseph gets word that they're there, he goes out to meet them. He says, I've got to gotta, gotta see Dad. Today is my father's birthday. And after church, I'm going to go see my dad. And he does not know that I'm coming. Okay. And I called mom so that I'd have a bed. But, uh, <laughs> but I said, don't tell dad I'm coming. Okay. Because um, I want to see him. Right. It's been 22 years since Jacob and Joseph last saw one another. Jacob was seven. I mean, Joseph was 17. When he left his father. Now he's 39. Lots happened in the intervening years. And when they see each other, there's just hugging and crying. It's just like you can imagine. And it says they hugged and cried a long time. And then Joseph says, Look, I've got to go introduce you to Pharaoh. Now, I'm going to try and get you into the land of Goshen, which is the best part of the land. Now, why, where's the land of Goshen? Um, the, 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 the Nile River flows north to the Mediterranean Sea, okay? Uh, different from the Mississippi, which flows south from Minnesota to New Orleans, uh, the Nile River flows north out of the mountains in the south, and so Upper Egypt is to the south, and Lower Egypt is to the north. Okay, I know that seems backwards, but that's, it's Lower Egypt is on the Mediterranean Sea. And there's this enormous delta that's down at the end. And that delta has all this silt that washes down to the, to the mouth of the river. And, there's, and on top of that, it's fresh water. And so there's just green, lush... Grass everywhere. That is the land of Goshen, down on the delta. Where there's good cropland, where there's lots of grass for their livestock, it's the best part of the land. It's not dry and arid like everywhere else. It's green and lush. And Joseph says, now look here. When Pharaoh asks you what your job is, tell him you're a rancher. Okay? Keepers of livestock. You're a rancher. Do not say you're a shepherd. Egyptians don't like shepherds. Don't mess this up for me. Okay? Don't mess this up for yourselves. Tell them you're a rancher. Tell them that you've been a rancher from your youth, just like your fathers before you were ranchers. Everybody got it? Okay. Let's go see Pharaoh. So Joseph takes the family off to see Pharaoh. And he takes five of his brothers. I think he doesn't want to overwhelm Pharaoh with how many people we're really talking about. He's trying to get the best deal he can. And Pharaoh says, well, hi, guys. Uh, How are you doing? Tell me about your occupation. And they all speak up and they go, we're shepherds just like our dads. (laughs) And Joseph's sitting there going, palm, forehead. (laughs) What are you doing, right? And And yet, Pharaoh's very gracious to them. He honors their request. In fact, what's interesting is after he finds out that these guys are shepherds, notice he doesn't talk to them anymore. He only addresses Joseph. He says, well, Joseph, uh, your brothers and your dad are here. You know, you can settle them wherever you want, but the best of the land, as you know, is the land of Goshen. And also, if you, if you have any of these guys that are, you know, have any intelligence at all about livestock, give them, uh, give them my livestock to take care of as well. And then he meets dad. He meets dad, and, and old, old Jacob comes kind of tottering up. Pharaoh is probably quite young at this point, and he comes kind of tottering up. He's got a little staff, you know, he's 130 years old. Think about that. Uh, he's a tough old bird, but he's still probably pretty tottery at this point. And he blesses Pharaoh and he says, and Pharaoh says, Well, tell me about how old you are, you know. I mean, how old are you? You look like a look like a crocodile handbag on, with legs, you know. And uh, and he says he says, Well, the days of the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 and few and evil have they been. And they've not been as long as the years of my fathers. And He's dep- kind of depressive. Um, I'm old. My life has been a journey. It's been hard. And I think that's fair to say. You know, a lot of Jacob's difficulties are kind of self-inflicted, as a lot of ours tend to be. Uh, but even with God's blessing, Jacob's life has been hard. And then he blesses Pharaoh again, and, and he departs. And jo- Joseph's able to settle them in Goshen, and he provides for everything they need. Let me just tell you something that's important. You know what was happening to J- Joseph and Jacob's family as they were living in the land of Canaan? Over time, they were slowly being sucked in, and assimilated into the surrounding culture, right? Two of the boys have children by a Canaanite woman. You know, Judah already mentioned. His, his oldest son married a Canaanite girl, and he was evil, and God put him to death. And so then his second son married the same woman, and he was evil, and God put him to death. And then he was afraid to have any of his other sons marry uh, his final son marry her, like, man, she's the black widow. I can't give him the last boy. give her the last boy. So she dresses up as a prostitute and he sleeps with her and has two boys with her. They're assimilating into Canaanite culture. Simeon also has a son. If you read that genealogy, Simeon also has a son by a Canaanite girl. Dinah was raped by Canaanite people in the city of Shechem. And then Simeon and Levi decided they'd strap on swords tell all the men of the city they had to get circumcised. And while they were still recovering from the surgery, they went through and killed them all. These are not the kind of things that the people of God are supposed to be doing. I think that's a safe statement. And they're slowly being assimilated into Canaanite culture. But, what is their job? They're shepherds. What's the one thing an Egyptian can't deal with? Shepherd. So God takes his people out of the land of promise where they're being assimilated into the culture, and within a few generations if they stayed there, they'd have just intermarried and disappeared as a distinct nation. And he puts them off by themselves in a little bitty spot in the midst of the one group of people who can't stand them because they are shepherds. He gives them a a land to live in that's prosperous and where they're going to grow and and experience great prosperity and wealth and and their flocks and herds are going to grow and where they're going to grow into a big group of people. Tens of thousands of them are going to result within 400 years. Why are they able to do that? Because God put them in the best spot in the land of Egypt, but he kept them isolated within the land of Egypt from everybody else because of their job. And what Joseph thought was a good idea, don't tell them they're shepherds. They're too stupid to realize it's a dumb idea. But God uses even their stupidity to keep them protected. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? I am. Because if this group of people had disappeared, there is no Messiah. This is the most important family on the face of the earth. And without them, there is no redemption. There is no Messiah. There is no person descended from the right family who will redeem the world. God protects them. God is gracious and He works even through their sin, even through their stupidity, even through a famine, even through slavery, even through prostitution, even through sin that is just unimaginable. God uses all of it to bring about his plan. He, he works with the fact that his people are living like, excuse me, living like pagans. Why? Because God is faithful and God is sovereign. And when he has made promises, he is going to fulfill them no matter what. He has promised Jacob that his descendants are going to form a mighty nation. And so that's already in the process of occurring. And thanks to his son's undiplomatic announcement regarding their occupation, they're going to be kept away from the Egyptians. And they're going to be kept from assimilating into their culture and their religion even as they prosper in the best part of the land. And he had told Abraham, look, you're going to be, you're going to be, your descendants are going to be, they're going to serve a foreign nation, and they're going to live in a foreign place, and they're going to do it for 400 years. Well, they're there. God has kept his word. This is what's going to happen. And to the outside observer, maybe all this just seems like coincidence. And it would be except that God has announced all these things that are going to happen before they did. And in spite of every variety of circumstance which would seem to put an end to it coming to pass, nevertheless, God still works around those circumstances to cause his promises to be fulfilled. And every one of them occurs just as God said that it would. Now, we're not going to go to the book of Exodus yet. We may pick that up at some point. But when the people come out of the land of Egypt, are they a nation? Yeah, baby, they are. There's a lot of them. 600,000 men go out of the land of Egypt. And here's the thing. This is what that means for you and me. It means that we can trust God's promises in spite of everything we experience. We can trust God's promises in spite of everything we experience. A lot of us, I think, can relate to Jacob's statement. We are a few days and full of evil. Right? And maybe we don't live as long as our ancestors. We, you know, we live in, at the moment, very troubled days. And it's full of uncertainty. You know, we're not yet in a famine. Maybe that will come. Certainly. The European Union is tottering financially. The nation of Greece is up in flames because they're bankrupt. And we here in the United States are the, the brokest, broke nation that has ever been broke. And yet we keep borrowing more money we don't have to finance things we don't need. Right? And everybody knows... This is not sustainable. And when the crash comes, it's going to be bad, right? And we live in uncertain times. We don't know what's going to happen. We know that one of the things that might happen is that there might be cuts to our defense budget, which is probably needed. But at the same time, we've got lots of people around the world who would like to kill us. And we go, how can we do that, right? And we wonder... Going to happen? Am I going to have a job? Am I going to have food to eat? Is my family going to be protected? Is my, all my resources going to be totally wiped out? We don't know. We don't know. We worry that maybe it all will come crashing. We don't know what to do. But here's what we do know we know God, and we know He is sovereign, we know He has a plan. And we know He has purposes for us that are good. And we know that no matter what happens, that God will be with us. Amen? God will be with us. Just like He was with His people in Egypt, just like He was with His people in the land of Canaan, just like He promised to be with us, He's going to be with us no matter what happens. Why? Because we have better promises even than Jacob. We may not be, each of us, patriarchs of a great nation, but you know what we are? We're citizens of heaven, adopted into God's own family as sons. We belong to a great people and are sons of a better father. Amen? Our big brother Jesus is coming one day to bring us to a new land. And we're going to live with him and experience the best that he has to offer us. And we may wonder what happens, you know, in light of everything that we experience each day. Is this all going to happen? Really? Because I don't see around me in my circumstances right now indications that God, God's promises are going to be fulfilled. And yet, here's reality. God is sovereign. God is faithful. And his promises are always, 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 yep. always. He is always faithful. He is still sovereign. He directs all circumstances after the purpose of his will. And he loves us. He loves us. And so we know no matter what happens. Let's say there's a run on Wall Street. Friday afternoon, and everybody's savings are wiped out. Let's say that the housing market really crashes. Nobody can pay their bills. And inflation goes off the charts, and you've got wheelbarrow loads of money you're taken down to Kroger to buy a loaf of bread. Okay? Could all that happen? Sure. It happened before in the nineteen thirties. It can happen again. You know what? God is still sovereign, and he still loves us, and he still has promises to us that are good, so that even if the bottom falls out of everything in your life, you lose your health, you lose your life savings, you lose your house, you're living in a tent, sleeping on a park bench, whatever happens, God is still sovereign, and he still loves you, and his promises to you will still be kept. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and precious promises. We thank you for the fact that you love us. We thank you that we are sons of a better father than Jacob because you have adopted us into your family and made us joint heirs with Christ of all things that are yours. And Father, we thank you for the promise of a better land where we will one day live and experience the best of everything that you have to offer to us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you are sovereign, which means that you control all things, and nothing comes to us which has not first passed through your loving hands. And Father, we thank you that your promises are always kept. And therefore, we can trust you. We can sleep at night. We can... Uh, Be very relaxed and calm even in the face of difficult days because we know that a God who loves us keeps his word and controls all things, working his loving plan out for those he loves. pray in Jesus' name.